to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, Episode 4. Today I have Kiana Henson. Part of my podcast is to feature guests who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. Kiana Henson, also known as KJ Rose, is the founder of The Rose Effect and a Grammy Award-winning artist, development, and performance expert who cultivates talent and conducts workshops globally, London, Ireland, Australia, and Ghana, to name a few. Affectionately known as the Artist Whisperer, KJ Rose is a powerful change agent with real-world experience who delivers real-world results, working for Clive Davis, coaching Little Nas X, and performing with P. Diddy, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, just to name a few. It is her creative destiny and infectious energy that company brands such as Adidas, Own TV, Google, Univision, Pandora Media, Rolling Stone Magazine, Tri-Destin Studios, Ad Color, Nickelodeon, Disney, Pretty Girl Sweat Incorporated, Universal, Columbia, Rostrum Records find compelling and deem her to be the ultimate solution for their talent. KJ has been commissioned to help performers activate their force. KJ Rose recently released her first book, The Rose Effect, Eight Steps to Developing the Performance of Your Life in April 2020, which debuted on Amazon as the number one release in professional development. The book aims to help both creative artists and executives reconcile their inner narrative so that their external expression is explicitly engaging. The book also speaks to everyday people like me and is an inspiration to whatever goals or aspirations you have in life. I have known Kiana or KJ Rose since college. We went to Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University, which sits at the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida. She is also my line sister. We pledged the Beta Alpha chapter of Delta Sigma Theta a few years ago. I know so much about KJ Rose as I have known her for over 20 years, but I learned so much more by reading her book. Please welcome Kiana Henson or KJ Rose. Welcome again. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yay. I am too. (laughs) So first question, what inspired you to write your book? Hmm. It's interesting because I don't think that I've had this long time, you know, goal or desire to write a book. I believe that my desire specifically to want to see artists of every discipline win and not have to reinvent the wheel. And so, you know, that desire, I think, superseded the fear that comes along with jumping into a new kind of like lane because writing was a new lane for me. Writing in that sense, right? I've written songs, but writing a book that equates to you being an author gave me trepidation. So it was really the nudging, the soft whispers to the disruption of life that God provided that really said, okay, it's time. 
it's time to push through. <laughs> so how was the process for you? You know what? It took about two years for me to finally kind of embrace this new direction, right? Because for me, again, I was doing work in Ireland and London and Ghana. I didn't feel like I was leaving any of the students with something tangible, like a tangible solution. And so I really believed that as much of the process that I was asking them to embrace, right? And a lot of times we look at the macro and not the micro. If we just make one step today, then all we got to do is that same thing again tomorrow, as opposed to trying to figure out where it will land, who will receive it. So I just did one thing every day. I tried to do one new thing and it didn't matter how small it was. If I believed it was contributing to the bigger picture and there was forward motion, I just wanted to at least gain some new ground and be as productive as I could be. So I would say, you know, I went from writing a little bit every day to using an app called Timmy, where I could actually speak my words into it and it transcribed to Word. So I felt like my process was specific and my timeline was specific to me, right? Everybody has an opinion on how they would do it. There are other authors who've already done it. So, you know, I definitely reached out to a few of my friends that I really admired for their journey. But I knew that my process, like I could get frustrated trying to keep up with somebody else's timeline, you know what I mean? Or their process. So every day was a new process. You know, every day I gave myself not just the permission, but the grace to be like, you know, you only got one line a day. Okay. Well, write that down. It still counts. You know what I'm saying? So I had to validate my process for myself, you know, and so I leaned into it and I created my own. Did you find parts of it painful because you share a personal side of you that some people may not know? Was that difficult for you? You know what? The way the Lord set up my life <laughs> is that <laughs> I definitely think going back to a, a painful moment is never fun. But when you have healed from that, painful moment, it makes it easier to share it. And you have a different motivation, you know? So my motivation really was not for you to say, woe is me, as much as it was to say, hey, I didn't just arrive here. You know, these are the things that I've had to endure. And so if I can do it, then let that be an example that you don't have to remain where you are in a situation or a relationship or a partnership that is not serving you. So I wanted it to be a tool that people use to give themselves permission to find the courage, muster the courage to get up out of anything that does not say to them, I am a freaking winner. You know what I mean? So by the time I got to that place, of course, you know, thinking about it and at the time, it just felt like such an immense loss that you know, years later, it was a necessary loss and I am more strengthened because of it. I'm more informed because of it and I'm better. And that's what I take to my clients. I feel like what appeared to be a failure, which I don't see it like that anymore. I just felt it was a necessary route. But those are the things that make you real. It makes your story specific to you. And that's what my clients need, right? They don't need me walking in, trying to assess them and their story and then tell them how to perform as much as they need someone that has lived through something, that understands them, that meets them where they are, that accepts them, that doesn't judge them. So I am grateful because I feel like all of that is the summation of who I am and the summation of what I give as a coach. How was it working with Lil Nas X? His quote about you, let me read it. When working with KJ, her energy just bounced off of her and goes straight to you. She's the best. KJ helped me to get the confidence to go out there and do a two-step. Oh, my sugar bear. It was an incredible, enlightening 
experience. I think it wasn't new for me to coach someone. It was new for him to be coached. But what was new for me was to lead someone into a space that they were not aware of. And then for me to lead someone who did not necessarily have the wheelhouse yet to understand what performance is as it pertains to them and their story, right? Most of the times I've worked with people that have been on stage before in some capacity. I don't care if it was your high school musical. That is a feeling that you add to the arsenal that you could always refer to when needed. But if you have an empty arsenal, then my job, the stretch that is required of me is to build that arsenal. And so I really believe that we served each other. We stretched each other. We saved each other. It was just, I was honored to be in that space and to have that opportunity and to do it with someone I now consider a friend. You've always had this injury from when we were in college. Where do you get it from? Like some days, I know you mentioned in your book, one day you were working with him and you had a lot of things going on at home that could have distracted you. So how do you get that energy despite you might not feel like, okay, today I'm not really feeling it, but you have to have that energy to help your clients. Where do you get it from? Hmm. I just say the Lord, like this isn't anything that I have, you know, gone to school for or gotten trained. And I feel like it is just who I am, you know? So as much as it may often look like the doing of coaching, it's truly for me, just the being of a coach. I am really just being myself. And of course I have moments where I'm just like, I have nothing left to give. Of course, there are moments where I feel like you need to replenish, you need to refuel, you need to sit on down. And I've now understood that it is important to take heed to those moments, you know? But I do feel like when I ask other people like what their force is, you know, I'm always encouraging them to understand that, you know, a force is not contrived. A force is just who you are unequivocally, explicitly. You never have to defend your force. It just is. It just exists. And that's really what energy is for me, you know? And there have been times where I felt like people have, the way they have assessed and interpreted my energy has always been like, oh, you're doing too much. And it used to like, you know, initially I used to be like, oh, maybe I need to calm down a bit. And then I was like, well, maybe you ain't doing enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe you need to get it together. So I'm just glad that I didn't let someone take the wind out of that energy because who knew that God would use it to serve others one day, you know, because you never think like, how is God going to use me? You know, and you couldn't have told me that he would use this kind of inherent energy to inspire and to encourage other people. So I don't know. It's a God thing. <laughs> Divine intervention. Yes. Another quote. For a performer to be treated great, they need inspiration to face their greatest fears. And I think you just addressed that. You're that force mm -hmm. that inspires others to be great. It's something in you, and it's always been in you to help others be great. And don't let anyone ever tell you you're too much, because that's you. You're genuinely on 10 all the time. <laughs> Hey, come on. Like, what else is there? I only know <laughs> um, Yes, thank you, Rudy. That really means a lot. You know, I think a coach needs a coach. A coach needs to feel inspiring words. When we pour out to others, then it is our duty to refuel and refill so that we have more to give. So thank you for that. That truly has brightened my day, sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Another question. You work with Britney Spears, Puff Daddy, Carl Thomas, Janet Jackson, among a few, which you mentioned in your bio. How, when you were starting out, 
were you able to stay humble but continue to grind and continue to work in your works without being too arrogant but being humble at the same time now how did you work that balance when you were first starting um well shoot i think it's so funny i just got excited that wasn't hard because that was not my career Mm -hmm. right so when i'm doing background for other people my life is predicated on when they work okay which has served me beautifully right because that was my training ground. I got to live vicariously. I've got to be trained six feet from, no, I think it's 20 feet from stardom. As a background singer, that's what happens. You learn from someone else's experience. You learn at their expense. And so, yeah, humility is, to me, it was easy. Of course, you know, you're working with these multi-platinum diamond artists that are touring across the world. But I was always very clear that if I was not professional, if I did not do what was necessary to stay as abreast and informed in my craft and making sure that I always supported them well, then they would call somebody else. That'll keep you humble. That wasn't hard to stay humble working with those guys, it just said to me, I felt like I was getting closer. When I was doing background, that was a time that I was not yet confident enough to put my own music out and step out as a recording artist, a solo recording artist. So every time I got on stage, you know, I talked about before how you've got to build your wheelhouse of experiences to pull from. So Every time I got on stage, although I was not in the forefront, that feeling of being on stage is what I needed to propel me to the courage and the confidence needed to stand there on my own one day. So I was able to pull from these experiences, to pull from, you know, my arsenal so that I had something that supported me when I was ready. So, yeah, it's awesome. Tell me about your experience with working with Heavy D. And what you learned from it, ultimately. That was a very interesting and like pivotal time in my life because I've always believed, and I don't know where it came from, but I've always believed that if you showed up, that'll get you a lot further. Even if you ain't the best in the room, you just good. Showing up will propel you. It will help you surpass. You will supersede someone that may have a little bit more expertise than you, but they didn't work as hard as you did and they didn't show up. Right. So when I got that call at like 11 at night to show up at the studio, it was like, I was always hungry for new opportunities, but so was everybody else in New York. You know what I mean? So it was The no that I would give would be a booming yes for somebody else. So I was like, oh, I'm going to keep saying yes. I'm coming. I don't care if I got to come from Brooklyn to, you know, 59th and Columbus Circle. I'll be there. And so, you know, I didn't know who the artist was, right? So sometimes the incentive is, oh, I'm going to work with that person. So even if it's inconvenient, you still like push through. But the real push through is when it's 11 at night, you don't know what it entails. They just say, we need a voice. You don't know if this voice will ever be heard and you show up anyway, right? And to my surprise, when I walked in, it was Heavy D. And our relationship, you know, from there, it was starting to blossom. And then I was invited to be on the video Mm -hmm. shoot. And I flew from, you know, that part. Yes, you tell us about that part. (laughs) (laughs) So I flew from New York to LA because I was, invited to be a part of that only to get to the set and then say, what's your name? And I don't, had I been KJ Rose? I don't think I had morphed into KJ Rose yet. So I was just like, Kiana, Kiana Henson. And they were like, yeah, you're not on this list. And I was like, huh? I was on the universal lot. I'll never forget. And they were like, you're not on the list. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, 
I tried to give other names. I said, I'm the girl who sings on the song Big Daddy. I was like, out your body. And they were like, mad, not today. So it was just for me, the most disappointing heartbreak that I had encountered as an artist. It was my first heartbreak, my first artist heartbreak. And so I remember having to fly back to New York. And then weeks later, getting a call to come and do the remix for Heavy. And so, you know, my first thought was like, y'all can remix on because I'm good. You ain't going to fool me another time. I ain't showing up. This time I ain't showing up because somebody played me. And so, again, in that moment, I'm just so grateful to God that in that second, I had a little bit of maturity to say, you know what? Again, they will call somebody else. So even in your feelings, how can you still make this work for you? And so in my mind, the way to balance it was, I'm going to go, I'm going to show up, but we ain't friends. I ain't having no conversations. We ain't going to be laughing and kicking like we friends. And I remember like walking in and he just was an effervescent spirit. So it was tough for me to have my little attitude, (laughs) but it taught me a few things. It was, you know, one, recover quicker from the disappointments or you'll miss the opportunity in the next moment. Two, nobody cares about your feelings. Get over it. It's business. And three, like show up. That's half the battle. Most of my jobs have been secured by me showing up and also my relentlessness in terms of calling and following up. Because again, I'm like, I know that there are several people vying for the same role, but they may be able to sing me under the table, but they ain't going to work me. They ain't going to outwork me. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that was a beautiful story. Just a beautiful experience with Hev and it really prepared me for what I do today and where I need to meet artists where they are and where I often have to take the ego out of it. You know, you can walk in with one idea in one way and be nimble and flexible to understand that it ain't about you. And so when I walk into a session, it's never about me. It's always about them. How can I serve them? You know, and so as a background singer, you get very used to understanding that you are in a supporting role. It's not about you. And if the goal is to get a certain sound, if you ain't going to show up to give it, they'll find somebody who will. So that was my long roundabout story. (laughs) Imposter syndrome. How do you deal with it? That internal voice, even though you made it, you have a job, but you have this internal voice telling you you're not good enough that are this fear that sometimes can prevent you from performing the way you like. How do you deal with that? Or how have you dealt with that in your career? I would say that, you know, early on, I tried to combat that by rehearsing. Like if I didn't feel like I was good enough, you know, vocally, I was like, the repetition will outweigh the fear, you know, because half of the fear and the trepidation is not feeling prepared. And the not good enough is because you didn't feel like you worked hard enough. And so once you get to a point where you know you've given it all you've got, then it makes it a little easier to know that you belong exactly where you are, right? Or if not, to make a decision to say, this ain't it, and to move on right? Otherwise you find yourself banging your head in a space that was never meant for you because you don't know that you're bigger than the space or even the people there may not be wise enough to see your importance or the necessity of you in the space. But you only know that when you have gotten to a point where you understand what you offer and who you are. And now I'm clear, like I had imposter syndrome when I was writing the book. Like, you're not an author. What are you doing? This is not what you do. Go stay, be the coach that you are. And over time, I felt like 
God kept saying, you keep asking all these people what they think about the one thing I've already qualified you for. And why is that? You know, why is it that when we've already been given the assignment, we've already been prepared, armored with what we needed to fulfill the assignment, we still have all these focus groups that we need to ask what they think, you know? And so it's finding the balance between knowing you're going to do it anyway, knowing that you've already been qualified for the space. And if you then want to go and just ask for people's constructive opinion and criticism, whatever it may be, then you have already planted your feet. You know what I'm saying? When you ask people what they think before your feet are planted, it's defeating. You know what I mean? Plant your feet first. Know it's happening regardless of what people say. Now, maybe you take in some of their feedback, you know, what you feel like works for you, but your feet don't move. Keep your feet where they are. Ooh, I think that just stumbled upon a word. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's how I feel about that. In lines with that, tell me about how you got over stage fright. And I never knew you had it until actually I went to your book signing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's funny because it was this physical thing. Like for me, my body was like sick. Even my mother was like, I just don't understand why you would choose something that makes you feel so bad. (laughs) And I was just like, I'm doing this. I'm pushing through. And I believe part of the stage fright was, I don't know what's going to happen when I get up there, right? I don't know what's going to come out. I don't know where I'm going to land And then when I figured that part out, I knew that I just had to get in the studio and keep rehearsing from top to bottom, right? So, because there's so many levels of it, it was, okay, now I can sing the song, but I don't want to talk to Mm y'all. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants you to go back to back to back without saying hi, you know? So then it was like, okay, well, let me start rehearsing what my script is going to be. And so there was just something about the repetition for me that emboldened me every time I got on the stage. Because again, I have a visual of me doing it successfully that is accessible to me. I can see it, I can feel it. So if you have already seen yourself do something victoriously, it makes it a lot easier to get on stage and do it again. It's hard to create something in a moment that you've never done before that you can't see, that you can't taste, that you can't feel. So I needed enough in my toolkit of successful takes so that by the time I got there, I already embodied a successful take that whatever the rest of that was, I can't control that, but I can control feeling prepared. So that's how I got over it. It didn't mean the feeling went away, of the feeling of sickness went away. It just meant it didn't have much power over me. It wasn't debilitating. So do you still get this sickness sometimes? Not to that degree. My heart drops. But now I've got the words. I've created power chance to push me through, right? Now i got the words to, to combat that. If you ain't got nothing to combat, not just beautiful words, if something happened, but when it happens, if you ain't speaking in that moment so that that thing can quiet and it has no space to grow or exist, that stage fright, then you're not going to win. It will overtake you. Your mantras. That's what I call them. Mantras. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. In your book, you describe a snake pit. Basically describing how art and music trying to make it in their world can damage and defeat many people. And it changes a person's spirit or personality How did you get through without that happening to you? I think Noah D said that, right? Mm -hmm. He wrote the foreword. He talked about the snake pit and how I was able to, I think, circumvent it to a degree. I think it's an emotional pit, right? And I think 
that, and who knows, maybe I didn't circumvent it. I think I did. There may have been times, you know, emotionally that, you know, you said it where you don't feel good enough. You don't feel like you belong there. And maybe when you are at your lowest, you encounter people that can infiltrate your spirit because you don't see them coming. And by the time you notice that they've taken up space, it's too late. And so I think, number one, it was my community of people. Like I didn't have to do it by myself. I had a community in New Jersey of other singers, a cohort of other singers. We shared experiences, we shared opportunities. We were just very generous in how we exchanged. You know, and I just think my family, even though sometimes your family and friends don't understand the passion that you have, you know, and I was just home and my mother was like, even though I don't get it all the time, I just want you to know that I support you. That's important. <laughs> I was like, that is important. So I think that it was the community around me that helped me evade falling into that sort of mindset of being overtaken by things that don't matter. And they really helped me to, to stay focused. Tell me about your decision to move from New York to L.A. I know you mentioned in your book that you were at first thinking, maybe I'll stay in New York and just take some jobs just to see. And you were like, no, well, God told you no. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, originally I felt sometimes you can get so caught in a space that you've grown out of, but the routine is so comfortable. And even if it's not working for you, you know what it is, right? So sometimes you stay with the beast that you know, as opposed to jumping out into the waters, the unknown waters. And so I had been in New York upon graduating from college. So I didn't know anything else. I knew early on that the hustle had worked for me and then when it stopped working or when I stopped working, well, that's the thing of accountability, right? Did the opportunities dry up or did my perspective and my level of tenacity shift a bit? So I was hungry for more. I didn't know what that more was, but I knew it was beyond and as great as all of my nine to fives have been. They've given me time to think about a new plan. They've given me time to expand and see other skill sets that I may have, but I always desired beyond those walls, right? So for me, when I came to LA, it was to sing with Tridestin Studios, Arsor, Envy Brown, Trey Haley, a lot of fam Ewans, Greg Anderson, Veronica, Nichols. So a lot of fam Ewans involved in that. And sometimes you just got to get out of the day-to-day space that you have allowed to just be, right? You've allowed this space to dictate who you are, what you do, and how you do it. But every now and then it's okay to jump to another side to gain new perspective. And that other side for me was coming to LA and singing in the film. And I was like, huh. So everything around me felt different. My prayers felt different. My conversations were different, right? So nothing changed. I was the very, I was the constant in this thing, right? So I just had to understand that although things may change around you, sometimes you still have to identify what is that part of you that needs something different, you know? So for me, being in LA, and I think it was the sun, like I said, it was the sun, it was the conversations. It was the audacity that I had. It was using the hustle that I got from New York and applying it in LA. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made was to move here. But then one of the best decisions I've ever made was to go to FAMU, was to move to New York. You know what I mean? So I just think, I just try to stay under God's covering so that I'm never jumping alone. You know what I mean? 
That makes sense. Yeah. Tell me about significance of Rose, your middle name. Rose. Oh, early on, I was not giving Rose too much of my attention because I just felt like it aged me. I was like, Rose, just such an older name. It was on the Golden Girls. Um, <laughs> and so, again, I had been on the road for many years. And when I would walk in to submit my work as a solo artist, people would automatically be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know you can't of the background singer. And so I was like, ooh. At that time, it was Kiana Henson. That was my stage name. And then I remember saying to myself, like, you've got to recreate yourself so that people don't put you in defeating positions, right? Sometimes people only see you through one lens. How do you stretch that lens? It's not their job to see you differently. It's your job to require it and to create ways in which they see different. And so I was like, okay, well, I went KJ. And then I was like, you know, I went back to the meaning of Rose. And I saw that I've always known that Rose was a lineage for me, right? My great-great-grandmother, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my paternal grandmother. There was a variation between Rose and Rosa. And so I was like, okay, that is who I am. You know, that represents strength for me. That represents constantly searching and constantly refueling and wise. This wisdom was in Rose because this wisdom was part of my lineage. And so I knew that I could never be challenged or moved to be anything different than who I am when I led with Rose. So that's how KJ Rose came to be? Yes. Okay. I see you looking. You want more? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the K is for Kiana. And the J was my former married name. Okay. The J used to be in one part of my life, Johnson. However, the J has been reassigned, right? Mm -hmm. The joy. And just know it'll never be what it was. And Jesus saves and jubilee and juxtaposed. But that's how you got the J. Okay. KJ Rose. (laughs) You spoke about your lineage. Tell me about your relationship with your grandfather. I remember in your book, he asked you Mm -hmm. one day, what are your goals in life? Baby, trying to figure out what you were doing. You know what? He was the only person that I allowed to like challenge me in that way. Like he was so absolute in his words and everything from, you know, are you making money? And I'd be like, you know, I'm seeing I'm an artist, but are you making money? And we're like, what do you do with yourself? You know, how do you make yourself useful? So, you know, all those things I was never offended by. I always knew that on the other side of that was him wanting me to win. And so when I could send him my album, he could have this physical, this tangible tool or just the result of all the work I did. That felt like he was like, okay, all right. So he kept me going. He's very just funny and smart and, you know, truly the patriarch of our family. And I feel like once I got granddaddy's approval, I didn't care what nobody else said, okay? And he got to hold on to my book in his final days. So that truly like warmed my heart. And I think is a testament to moving when God says move, you know, even when I think about the life of the process of the book, when it was complete, it was at the onset of COVID, you know, and I didn't even know that people could use this tool during this time. And then to have it complete and in my grandfather's hands, you know, like even down to two weeks later would have been too late. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying now to understand that the urgency of moving when God says move. What did he say when you gave him 
your book? Well, you know, he had Alzheimer's, so he didn't say a lot, but I knew I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I, I showed it to him. And so just knowing that he had it, that he touched it and he had it. Yeah. I know that he gave me his approval, you know, to keep going in that moment, you know? Yeah. Well, he's he's (laughs) smiling from heaven and Mm -hmm. so proud of you. Thank you. Tell me about your experience when you were working for Clive Davis. How was it and what did you learn that helped you in your career? Yeah. Clive Davis kept me on my toes. He never knew I sang. And I just didn't want it to be that I was like, I was the assistant who came in looking for the record deal, (laughs) even though I was. (laughs) And so, you know, he taught me the importance of never resting on your past laurels, never getting comfortable, you know, projecting clearly and with a level of force being concise not just your ideas but your voice and i just the the work ethic that he had was inspiring even if he had a number one now the work became how do we keep it number one and then how do we get the next number one so i felt like that to watch that cycle of a person, you know, was encouraging and set, just truly set the bar high. You know, I knew that every day I came in that I had to rise to a level of professionalism and intellect to be able to exchange with him. So, you know, by the time he found out that I sang, I was on my way on tour with Janet Jackson. And that was truly, for me, like just exciting to see that play out, to hear him as I walk into the office, share with all of his execs in there where I was going and for him to shout my name in such a way that I didn't even know he could enunciate that because at that time it was Kiana. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you got to put some work into Kiana. And so I learned so much, you know, from him and I learned to honor my space, honor the space that you're in. It may not be you know, where you saw yourself, but honor it in a way that you take the opportunities to learn what every department does, to have conversations, because it all adds value to that thing that you're hoping for. So it was definitely, I say, one of the jobs, the roles in my life that truly like catapulted me and how I navigate the music business. For those of you who may not know, the few who may not know who Clive Davis is, he's a record producer, author, A&R, and music executive. He has worked with Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, Jennifer Hudson, and Alicia Keys, just to name a few. Tell me about after you produced your record and you actually gave it to him and the advice or the words that he gave you regarding your album? I mean, he basically said that he didn't think that my single was a radio hit. And so it didn't crush me. You know, I just said, I have come full circle. Mm -hmm. You know, I tried to look at the positive, which was I worked for him almost two years and I always wanted him to hear my voice. Now, of course, the next level would have been now make me a star. Mm -hmm. But I was grateful that he had a chance to hear my work. And it just further fueled me and empowered me to keep going because my song was on the radio. So, you know, sometimes you just got to keep going. You take people's feedback and you file it away and then you get your song on the radio. So how was it when you first heard your song on the radio? I don't think there are any words because, you know, when I first heard my voice ever, it was heavy um, D's. Heavy right. song, I was with Indy Brown and Nakaya, my ism. And we were elated. I was hanging out of the window 
I was like, that is me. It was like to see something from its infancy to now, like to hear it through your radio on Hot 97. Like there were very few words. It just showed me if I can do this, whatever else I need to do, I can make that happen too. So yeah, it's inexplicable. Greatest feeling ever. Shame may often keep you in a place that no longer serves you. Tell me about this quote and how it helped formulate how your song, your song that I love. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I wrote that quote. I don't think I knew it at the time, right? I think I didn't know that I was staying in a space longer because of the shame until I looked back and assessed how much longer did I stay beyond the time that I should have and what part was fear and what part was, you know, shame. And just to be more specific, it was a broken marriage for me. And so I think the shame of feeling like a failure, the judgment, made me stay longer to work through something that I knew was too broken for me to do anything about, you know, for anything that I could control. And so, yeah, that's how that quote came about. Tell me about the song, A Better Way, in more detail. <laughs> <laughs> a Better Way was, well, yeah, that was, they were separate, you know. A Better Way was a healing tool for me to go through that period of time that was challenging. And so I didn't really have any expectations of it other than I needed something to get me through those moments. And so I wrote it because I didn't know what else to do. And I'd sing it when I would tour and, you know, people would share, women would share how impactful it was to them. But still, it would always transport me back to a place where I felt sad. And until it was the song that landed in Queen Sugar, a song that I had dismissed for a really long time, for it to land in Queen Sugar. And it was written from, again, you know, that space of shame and feeling doubtful and disqualified. And now they put it in the scene that spoke of love and honor and loyalty. So a lot of times we attach ourselves to the negative of something. And in this particular moment, within 52 seconds, which was the duration of the song, the duration of the episode, my attachment to it, it shifted. And so now I find joy in the song where at one point I didn't. I completed the body of work because it was what I needed at the time. Another one of your quotes in relation to a better way. When going through a heartache, it is difficult to embrace the notion that God would take your most painful moments and use them for his good. And that's what he did for a better way. And just to let you know, your song is on my playlist. When I run races, I listen to music. And I'm not the type of person who always listens to upbeat music. I kind of mix it up with motivational songs and your song motivates and inspires me. Just want to let you know that. Oh, thank you, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me about pivoting as far as your career when you went from solo artist to a performance coach. You know, pivoting for me sometimes, I don't even realize it's happening until I get to the other side of it. Some are, are, are mindful of the pivots, they're intentional. And then some, I'm like, I feel like God is moving me. And before I know it, I'm facing a new direction and I'm allowing myself to be moved and to be nimble. And so I think a lot of times we equate pivots with one thing not working as opposed to knowing that several things can work together. And so pivoting from artist to coach, to me, I could not be the coach that I am without the artist. So they're all necessary. 
for me, they were instrumental in my development. And I think it's the way you see them. You know, again, if you look at it as discounting all the work that you've done for one thing and feeling like now you have to do something totally separate, but they all work together for the good, you know, and they make you stronger. All the experiences make you stronger. So I'm so grateful for the pivots because a lot of times when we are down one track, going down one track, we believe that that's the only thing that we have to offer. And God says, hey, but I made you to be more than just one thing. And it results in you changing directions and pivoting. What was the most challenging part of that the change? For which pivot? For the pivot <laughs> to being a coach. Other people saying that I gave up. Mm-hmm. So how did you deal with that? Or you just said, they don't know my story, forget them. I think initially it definitely hit me in a way where I was just like, did I give up? I don't think I gave up. I think this was a choice. So initially it hit me in, in a way that was uncomfortable because I hadn't figured out what I thought about it first. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't said it my own feet. And then I realized that I didn't give up. I did it. I completed that assignment and it was time to move to a new one. And I was successful at it. And maybe you just missed it. And that's okay too. So yeah, that's how I had to get through it. You know, it was allowing less space for people to penetrate my spirit in an uncomfortable way. Another one of your quotes, pivots don't discount the work you've done but they add more depth and richness to your vision, to your story. Mm-hmm. It's true. That's what I said. Yeah. Nothing goes to waste. I'll say that. So I'm going to read some of your personal power chants. And I want okay. you to tell my listeners what they are and how they add power, how they can add power to those dark days. Okay. One is you are the yes. If you're not walking in believing that, what are you there for? Don't invite yourself to the table. Wait to be summoned. Luke 14, 10. That was when I was working with Chasing Destiny with Kelly Rowland. That's an interesting uh, balance, right? I invite myself a lot. And so not inviting yourself to the table doesn't mean that you still don't have to be relentless to get to the table, right? So that particular case, I was invited into the room. I saw three chairs ahead of me. You know, I thought my math was right. I was like, it's me, Kelly, and Frank. However, what if it ain't? So I stood in the back. I was already in the room. I'd already done what needed to be done to get into the room. And now it would be sweeter to be invited to that seat. And when she turned, I stood in the back when they walked in and she turned back, she said, KJ, this is your seat. So that was my example of not inviting yourself, waiting to be summoned, but it does not, it is not in lieu of the work to getting to the table. Tell me about that in relation to when you met Oprah. The process, you saw her a few times. Yeah. So we had a few encounters. And each time I was like, this is supposed to be it. Like, I've got to have my moment with Oprah. And God was like, nope, I'm going to need you to chill for a second. And so it wasn't until I ended up getting to an award show where she was there. And I remember... I was with Nakaya and my bosses had invited me to the table. And so they had invited me to the award show and I was at table 75. They were at like table two. And then they texted me and said, Oprah just walked into the side door. And again, that entire week, you know, I met her at Commons Oscar party, but it still wasn't right to tell her who I was and what I did. And then a few days later, I ended up meeting her at the award show. And I just 
walked over there, you know, initially I was very doubtful. Part of me was like, what are you doing? The other part of me was like, keep walking, you got this. And at one point I came back to the table because I just wasn't ready. Like I didn't have enough confidence. And then finally I was like, okay, we've got to do this. So I walked back to her and I remember her security guard was out there. He put his arm out and I just tapped it and said, don't worry about it. I got to do something. And before I knew it, I was kneeling down beside her while she was eating bread, you know, and to get myself to that point, I had to keep my power chance going. You know what I'm saying? Like you were born for this. You're meant to be in this room. There's nothing about you that's mediocre. And I knelt down beside her and I was able to show her. I said, initially, Miss Oprah, we took a cute picture the other day. I thought you might want to see it. And she said, I do. And I showed her the picture and I was like, it's cute, right? She was like, it is. <laughs> and that was my opening into kind of sharing with her, you know, what I do. And so it was, again, the relentlessness, the power chance. At that point, you know, it was understanding that God will open the doors, but you got to be ready when he does and showing up, showing up every time, you know. So even though that entire week I had had two encounters with her from an event I wasn't able to get into to an event that I was able to get into, but it wasn't time to another event, you know, later that week that I was invited to. So it, it just, it all counted, you know, it all counted. Okay. Running is cheaper in therapy, my podcast. Part of it is to have guests who tell about how they overcame obstacles to get to their finish line, and you truly embody that. Any last-minute words of advice, inspiration for my listeners or for me, actually? Oh, number one, first, I am so happy to be a guest on your podcast. I think that these types of conversations are so important. And sometimes you don't know that you need words, you know, from me as well, until you hear them, until you absorb them, you don't know that you need it. And so my final words would be to know that we are all vessels. We all have something to offer. And sometimes God only tells you what that assignment is. And so it is your duty not to disqualify yourself from that assignment. I think when we're young, you know, we're fearless, we're inquisitive. And then something happens along the way where other people push their doubts on us. They push their insecurities. They push their limits. They're pushing their own sense of self or inability to have foresight. And we allow that to take up space where it never should have existed. And so I just, I want people to now take ownership. I want them to reclaim things that they have lent out. I want them to reclaim things they've abandoned to know that your gift is necessary. We need it there. Even if one person can be changed, their lives can be changed from what you offer, it is still necessary. So those are my words. Well, thank you. Can you tell everyone how to get in touch with you via social media? I have links for your book if anyone wants to purchase. Mm -hmm. Tell me again and tell everyone else your book title and your social media accounts in case they want to get in touch with you or link with you. Sure. Yes. My Instagram is KJ Rose Effect, as well as my Twitter. My TikTok is Rose Effect 20. My Facebook is Kiana KJ Rose Henson, as well as my LinkedIn. And there you have it. Well, thanks again. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. And thank you everybody for listening. The Rose That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. 
please, if you already haven't, download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, O as in Omaha, L as in Love, B as in Brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle We OUI Life, L I V E. We OUI Love, L O V E. Again, We OUI Life, L I V E. We OUI Love. Thank you, and please tune in again.